0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church This teaching is from the series Jesus the King who came to die a study of the Gospel of Mark This dynamic fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah God's Son the King who came to suffer and die to save his people We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today we're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at uh, the first 20 verses in Mark chapter 5, what is oftentimes referred to as the Gadarene demoniac. This is where we are in Mark's gospel, and it's a lengthy passage of Scripture, but also a very memorable and moving passage. So you can follow along on the screens or in the booklet. I encourage you also to uh, have your own Bible here and follow along. So hear now the word of the sovereign Lord. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus had gotten out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God, you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, And told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. As I read this account, uh, it brought to mind a fairly famous literary story or figure, which is out of The Lord of the Rings. One of the major characters was a character named Smeagol, who was originally a little hobbit. And he one day found this ring that he didn't realize was one of the rings of, it was the ring of power, the one that ruled over all the others. And over time... Smeagol became so enamored by this ring and so loved by this ring and came under such sway of the ring, he became distorted in soul. Body and mind. He withdrew from being around people. He started living off in a cave. He eventually, you know, by the time you meet him in the movie, uh, you know, or the books, he's he's eating raw fish. He he bears no resemblance. He doesn't even look like what he had begun to do. And he has started. His personality has become split, and he's referring to himself very often as Gollum, and he's become this uh, truly tortured, split. Being that is very—he's uh, really, really creepy. Our our third son John can do an amazing imitation of Gollum from the movies. If you ever see him, you can ask him to do it. You know where he coughs up and does it. As you watch this character in the movies, it's Tolkien's representation. Tolkien was a believer, and I have to think that Gollum is a representation of what happens to us under demonic power and sin. And particularly, I think a lot of it is drawn out of this character in Mark chapter five someone who has come so under the domination of evil that they bear no resemblance to who they were, how they were created, and they really are kind of operating as a split personality. And so we're going to be looking at the story of this man known as the Gadarene demoniac or Gerasene demoniac, you'll hear him referred to as both, and see what it teaches us about Uh, both demonic powers and what they're wanting to do, but especially what it points to and teaches us regarding who Jesus is. Now, to remind us, two weeks ago we had looked, you remember we had spent quite a while, about a month, looking at the parables. And when Jesus concluded teaching the parables, he gets in the boat with the disciples, and they're going across the lake, and on the way there's this massive storm. And we're going to see that Mark has these two stories. It's important the way he's telling them, because he wants them to be read together. Because In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, a very short thing, uh, Mark gives us this story of the storm, and it is full of vivid details that Luke and Matthew don't record, and that's because it's probably coming directly from Peter's memory. Uh, And if you remember in the story, the disciples are afraid of this chaotic storm that is there over them. Um, And then, They wake Jesus up, and he rebukes and silences the storm. And if you remember, I pointed out to us that when it says he rebuked the storm and he told it to be quiet or be still, who did he normally use those same two words with? Demons, okay? So the the storm was cast almost as if it was a demonic force or power, and it has to submit to Jesus, and it becomes quiet and still. And then at the end of the story, if you remember, the disciples who had been afraid of the storm, who are they now afraid of? Jesus. Okay, so you've got kind of these vivid details. There's this situation of chaos, this storm. Jesus shows mastery over it, and then the fear shifts from the situation to Jesus. Well, notice in the story that we just read, it's parallel in many ways. It is full of vivid details. If you compare it in Matthew and in Luke, there's far fewer details than here, because again, I got to believe Peter is probably closing his eyes and reminiscing what happens as soon as they arrive in the thing. Here, it is not just a storm where Jesus speaks to it like a a demon. We're literally told that a man under the power of demons is threatening people everywhere. It is a complete state of chaos, and everybody is afraid of this guy. They just want him gone. But Jesus comes. He displays total mastery over the demons, and then what happens? Who's everybody afraid of now? they're now afraid of Jesus. It's the exact same parallel structure as we had seen in the previous account. And what's interesting in this one, again, is it is the most detailed account of demonic activity anywhere in the Gospels. We've encountered demons multiple times all the way back in Mark chapter one at the very early part of the Gospel. We've seen them here, but here for the first time we get a detailed account of what they're doing to a person. And from this, what we're learning really is their motives and desires. And I'm not going to dwell on this a lot today, but make no mistake about it. Satan and his demonic forces, this is exactly what their uh, devices, designs, and desires for you and me are. They are no different than what we read about in this account here. So let's dive in a little bit of the text and notice what happens is Jesus has been in this storm and when he gets there and what we read in verses two to five, he goes from one storm into another. Now, why I say this is in verse two, we're told, you know, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit comes and meets him. But the NIV doesn't translate it because it becomes repetitive. It's got one of Mark's favorite words, which is the word immediately. So You know, when we're reading the story, Jesus calms the storm, the disciples are afraid, and then the next thing we read is they land, and immediately this guy comes running towards them. Mark is letting us know there's no break in the action. It is, you're out of one storm, and you're right into another storm. And notice the pitiful description of this individual who comes up. It's a man who runs up, and where does he live? In the tombs in the graveyard. That's where he lives, okay? This is not a place that a human being ought to live. It is a place of death. And notice in verse three, the, re, uh, the response of the people is they're not trying to help the guy. What are they trying to do? Bind him up, okay? Now, what, what do we bind up with chains? I mean, either criminals or most often, what do we, we bind with chains? Animals, right? I mean, the, the description is almost they're treating the guy like an animal, and this is actually confirmed in the very next phrase. We're told uh, he had often been chained hand and foot, and no one had strength enough to subdue him. The word there for subdue is normally used for taming a wild animal. It's used in James chapter 3 to say nobody can tame the tongue. We can tame all kinds of wild beasts and animals, but we can't tame our tongue. It's the same word that's used here. So this guy who has created problems, they basically run him out of town. He's living among the tombs, and their only interaction is to attempt to bind him with chains um, and to subdue or tame him, but is any of that working? It's not. He, he's even breaking the chains apart. He's apparently got some kind of supernatural strength here from the demons. But notice as it continues on, this man who's living among the tombs uh, like an animal, being treated like an animal, they're trying to, to subdue him and to put chains on him, he's moaning and crying out all night long. he's moaning or howling like some kind of animal out there among the tombs and then finally the last note we're told is he's crying out and he's taking stones and he's actually attacking himself he's cutting himself with stones attacking his his uh, body you can't hardly create a more pitiful picture I mean, Mark has given us detail here, and it's for a reason. The disciples get out of the boat, and I again believe Peter is remembering this. We've just come out of the storm. We're trying to figure out what in the world is going on around us, and then this is what we're greeted with. This guy comes running up to us. And it's immediately apparent that the demons have reduced this man to living like a wild animal, and his soul is so tortured that he's mutilating his own body. And the picture we get is, like the waters in the storm we had just read about at the end of Mark chapter 4, like the waters in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, this guy is a boiling chaos. And the image of God that he is made to be is hardly visible at all. He he no longer resembles what he was made to be. And if you think again, when we, you know, when we have movies, we oftentimes try to show the power of evil. When people give in to evil, their, their external body becomes very, very distorted. They start looking like a different creature. That's our way to attempt to say something's gone wrong in this person's soul. You can't see the soul, but you can see the body. And so we do it visibly. Well, that's what's going on here. This guy is so tortured in his soul, it's becoming apparent in his body and the way he lives. Now, just to add a little bit more to it, if you were a Jew in the first century experiencing or hearing this story, there's not only all of that, the entire thing reeks of uncleanness, okay? Now, why I say this is, the story is in a Gentile region. The Decapolis is a region across the lake that is dominated by Gentiles. So Jews already would say, they should stay there, we'll stay over here. But Jesus has gone into their region. Secondly, notice Mark doesn't actually say the man has a demon. He says he has an unclean spirit. Thirdly, the man lives among the tombs. If you went near a tomb, you were ritually unclean until evening. You had to ceremonially wash. Fourth, the area is full of what kind of animal? Swine. There's, in fact, there's a mass, 2,000 of them. Okay, so, so to a Jew, they would be repelled And and then to be greeted by a guy who is evidencing complete control by demons, any good observant Jew would get right back in the boat and go back across. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Okay? That is on top of everything else that's happening. Now the question is, how's Jesus going to respond? What is he going to do? And what Mark tells us is, Jesus is going to confront the demons and show his lordship over them, just as he did the storm. So, as we, as we dig in, notice the demons immediately begin a confrontation with Jesus. In verse 6, we're told the man sees Jesus from a distance and he runs and he falls on his knees in front of him. And the first question we might have is, you know, why is he doing that? But we're going to see throughout this section, there's almost a wrestling between the man and the demonic forces. They're going to keep, the, 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 the man is trying to act, but the demons keep coming in between them. Again, this split personality. We're going to be seeing Smeagol and Gollum, if you're familiar with the movie there. There's this wrestling going on. So the, the man runs up and he falls on his knees, and it says that he shouts at the top of his voice, but it's very clear who's actually speaking. The demons are actually creating the, the speech that's going on here. I mean, they're using the man's physical body to do it, but the demons are behind the words. Now, why do I say this? Notice they, they immediately shout, what do you want with me is how the NIV has it. It's literally, what, what is there between you and me? And this, every time it's used in the New Testament with the exception of one time, every time it's what demons say to Jesus And this phrase, as it was used in the Old Testament in Greek literature, and as it's used in the New Testament, it means we're at cross purposes with one another. We are not wanting the same thing. What's going on here? Why are you interacting with me? Because you want to go one way, and I want to go another. Secondly, notice that they they jump in and they say, what do you want with me, Jesus? Now, what's unusual about that? How does this guy know who Jesus is? There's no record Jesus has ever been in the Decapolis. There's nothing about it. But see, the demons know who he is. Thirdly, notice that they not only call him Jesus, they call him the Son of God. Uh, You are the Son of the Most High God. Who is the only people in Mark's gospel thus far that have understood who Jesus is? Demons. You remember, even the disciples in the previous story we just read in the storm, their question is, who is this? Who is this man that he can speak to the storm? The only ones who understand who he is are demons. And so, and then notice, he says, swear to God that you won't torture me. This is not the guy worried about being tortured. This is the demons who are worried about being tortured. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it specifically is speaking of torture by being sent away to the the netherworld and beginning the final torture that is awaiting satan and all of his demonic hosts and they say are you here to do this ahead of time it's not supposed to be the time for that are you doing that now that's what's going on here and notice we're told then finally in verse 8 jesus is speaking to the demon to come out so all of this tells us the guy's lips are moving but it's the demons that are actually speaking they are actually at work here and they are confronting Jesus. And so now notice here there's a bit of irony that in verse 8, the, uh, I mean in verse uh, 7, they're saying, swear to God that you won't torture me. And meanwhile, what are they doing to this poor man? They're torturing him day and night. They've turned his existence into a living hell. But they're saying, don't, don't do to us what we're doing to this guy. Note, note the the irony that is there in the story, just like we saw last week the disciples accused Jesus of sleeping in their moment of need when they're later going to sleep in his moment of need. Mark uses irony a lot, and he's using it here again. These demons are saying, don't torture us like we're doing. But notice he then goes on, and he's going to describe the depth of demonization that is happening here to create this in this man. In verses Five uh, in verses nine to thirteen, Jesus continues, and he says in verse nine, uh, "What is your name?" Now, some people have tried to say that Jesus is trying to speak to the demons to get their name. There's actually no proof in the New Testament that Jesus or any of the apostles or anybody thought getting the name of the demon gave you power over them. There's a lot of people who want to preach that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in after hours today. There's nothing in the New Testament that indicates that. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't ask. It its name, he asked him its name. And when the demon responds, we're specifically told that um, that he's going to talk about the demons begging Jesus in just a couple verses. So Jesus isn't asking the demon, he's asking the man, what is your name? But who immediately replies? The demons do. Because again, get this picture. There's this, this split personality that's going on. And what do the demons say? What's their name? legion, which isn't really a name. It's a reference to the fact we're we're legion because we are many. Now, does anybody know how many were in a Roman legion? Five to 6,000. Now, this is not a statement that there were literally five to 6,000 demons in there, but in other words, the most powerful fighting force that was known at this time was the Roman legion. This is a statement. We are many. We are here. We are powerful. Um, But that is not going to dissuade Jesus. Notice that uh, they're begging Jesus again, you know, not to be sent out of the area. And it may even be, it's hard to tell. If you read this and you're like, I'm not sure, is this the guy or is this the demons? The answer is kind of yes. That's part of the point. It may even well be that the guy is afraid of the demons being sent away which sounds crazy, doesn't it, until you think about when the Lord tries to deal with something in your life or mine that may be destructive, and what sometimes is my response? Yep, don't send it too far away, Lord. Right? Is that not the case? You know, Lord, deal with this, but can you do it like tomorrow or next week? So there's this struggle back and forth and the guy the guy where the demons are saying you know please don't send us away from the area and then we're told in verse 11 this statement that there's a large herd of pigs feeding on a nearby hillside again to a Jew that is a very unclean thing and we're told in the next verse how large is this herd 2000 pigs now I don't know if you've ever been around pigs very much they have an interesting aroma I will say, and I've never been around 2,000 of them. This is a massive herd of swine. And yeah, it is a lot of them. But I want you to see as well, it's a reminder to us that Jesus, even though he normally doesn't do this, he is penetrating a Gentile area with the presence of the kingdom of God. And it is, by the note that there's a massive herd of pigs like that, it's a note that this is a very, as it were, dark place. And he is there. And the demons are begging Jesus uh, to go into the herd of pigs rather than being sent far, far away uh, from doing this. Now, what's interesting is Jesus allows it, okay? And it's unusual. Uh, He allows it. And what happens to the entire herd when the, when the demons go in among them? I mean, they all become crazy. They start acting like lemmings. They run over the edge and run down into the water and they are drowned. Now, several things to note in this. Number one, what does this tell us about the resilience of a human being? This this group of demons that in a split second can cause 2,000 pigs to go completely insane and rush in and kill themselves, this guy has lived with them for years in him by the picture. Now, with all kinds of horrible effects, remember he's been cutting himself, he's been living among the tombs, he's been doing all this, but it, it really is a sign of the resilience of humanity as the image of God. Secondly, Jesus is probably allowing this because what becomes really, really clear when Jesus says, I'm cast the demons out, how do I know if they've left or not? I mean, it's really kind of hard to know, right? Sometimes we see, you know, that the people will shriek and we're gonna see in a later miracle where they think that the person's actually dropped dead but in this case, how would anybody know? Well, it becomes immediately apparent. There were 2,000 pigs. <laughs> he speaks a word, and all of a sudden, the pigs go nuts and go rushing off into the water. And so he's doing it probably to prove the man has been delivered, but what does it tell me about the intent and the design and the desire of the demons? What do they want to do? Steal, kill, kill destroy. You remember Jesus actually says this in John chapter 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. I've come so that you can have life. I want you to have abundant life. As much as God designs to bless, they design to curse. As much as God desires and designs to give life, they want to produce life death that is always what the demons are attempting to do they want to confuse they want to enslave they want to destroy and so what really has to be seen above everything else here uh, in the question of you know the pigs and what's going on is actually the fate of the swine demonstrates the ultimate intention of the demons with respect to the man they had possessed This is a quote by one of the commentators, William Lane. It is their purpose to destroy the creation of God and halted in the destruction of a man, they fulfilled their purpose with the swine. Do you hear what, what William Lane is saying here? They are seething with destructive intent. They have been trying to get this man to kill himself. They've been trying to wreak complete havoc and destruction. And when they can't do it with him because Jesus releases the man, they immediately rush off and they'll do it with the swine. This is their very nature. The reality of the demonic forces and their destructive intent should be clear to everyone. So what should we expect to read in the next verses? And the town came down and they rejoiced. And our friend, our family member has been restored to us. And if you believe that, you have not paid much attention to the gospel thus far, nor to human beings. Because very sad to say, we get this picture of two massively divergent responses to what's just happened. The first one is the, divergent, uh, is the response that comes from the townspeople, and their response is fear and actually to plead with Jesus to leave. Now, I find it kind of funny, you know, in verse 15, the people tending the pigs run off and reported this in the town and countryside. Why are they really reporting? What, what do you think is the dominant note in their report? Listen, we were responsible for 2,000 pigs, and they're all gone right now, but let me explain why they're gone. <laughs> okay, I didn't do this. This wasn't something else. There was this dude, and you remember the guy that lives among the tombs? He was down there. He's begging around on the ground. Jesus spoke, and the next thing we know, the pigs all run into the water. Okay, and we know that because notice in verse uh, 16. I love the way Mark puts it. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. They want to make sure they're noting what happened to the pigs. And so the people hear this and they come out and they see and it says that they are amazed because the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons was sitting there dressed and in his right mind. What we should read is, and they rejoiced. A human being, the image of God that has been tortured, that has lived like an animal, that has been expelled from around us, has been restored. But that's not what happened. They're looking, and the man is sitting, not raging, dressed, not naked, in his right mind, not screaming or hurting himself. But like the disciples in the storm, this display of power prompts fear in the people. Human beings fear such supernatural power, and you know why? Because I can't control it. We, I'm going to put a quote up in a couple of minutes about this, but see, we we say, oh, if I could see the power of God. What usually happens when God's power is revealed in Scripture? See, God mediates. He meets us at the table. He mediates to, to us because if he came in his raw, naked power... We, we can't take it. You know, we sang a song this morning that's based on Isaiah 6. Even the prophet of God, when he gets a vision of the Lord, Isaiah says, I'm coming undone. I, I'm, it's over for me. I'm not going to survive this. And that's exactly what is happening here. The people are now afraid, but this is not the fear of the Lord. They are afraid of Jesus. They are afraid of this kind of power. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's done, but they do know one thing. They don't like him being around. And then on top of that, there's an issue of the pigs. What does that represent to them when 2,000 pigs run down and are drowned? Massive economic loss. Now, that may sound strange to us, but I can't tell you how many commentators I had to read dealing with is it okay that Jesus allowed 2,000 pigs to get destroyed? This is like a big question for people. And I'm like, okay, well, you're being very much like the townspeople. What about the guy? What about the guy who's no longer living like an animal? Yeah, but what about the pigs? okay, they're pigs. (laughs) What about the guy? But see, they're right in line with the townspeople. And so many people today complain actually about the loss of the pigs. We're not really that much different than what's going on there. Jesus is not only a power they can't contain, it's a power that just costs them economically. It's a power that meant the the, the way that things have happened for them are now in deep danger If this guy. I mean, if he hangs around, what might it cost us tomorrow? Now, lest we judge them too quickly, is that not the same motive that laid behind slavery? Jim Crow in the South? I mean, even after we had the Civil War and, and hundreds of thousands died, we descended into another century of Jim Crow laws, and why? Because our whole economy is built on this. I mean, it is going to cost. People who were reading their Bible every week. So you can get really comfortable. And it's easy for me to judge them. But what if Jesus came and in a display of power, I realized, whoa, I could lose my comfortable lifestyle. This could cost me. Hanging around this guy, I might, I mean, people might get spiritually set free, but we might become impoverished. That is clearly part of what is going on here. Economic comfort in, can easily eclipse concern with the welfare of humans and the work of God. We, we easily sometimes run into this, don't we? That I, I don't want to know too much, I don't want to know what's going on there, because that might you know, require me to make some changes. And that's absolutely what's happening here. And so it should cause real reflection for each of us. And so the end result of this, notice, I mean, what a terrible statement in verse uh, 18, or verse 17, excuse me. The people plead with Jesus to leave. God has taken flesh. A people that are not part of the historic people of God The Messiah comes to their region. He gets out of the boat, and what's the first thing they tell him? Yeah, could you get back in the boat and go back across to the other side? I mean, this is a horribly sad statement. What if Jesus had come to Annapolis, and our response was, can can you go back across the bay? But that's literally what is happening here. They reject Jesus and his saving power, preferring the comfort of their economic prosperity, familiar lives, and gods they can control. We got a guy living in the tombs. He's howling like an animal. He's breaking chains. He scrapes himself. But but we figured out ways to work around that. But we're not too sure about you being here. So another one of the commentators, James Edwards, said this, most people, if they were asked, would probably say they would like to see a manifestation of God. But this story is a cold shower for such religious pipe dreams. When God manifests himself in Jesus, most people ask him to leave. And the reference there to John 1.11 is in the prologue where John says, he came to those which were his own and they did not receive him. So he's pointing out this isn't just the people living in the Decapolis when the Messiah came to the people of Israel who claimed and every day said, oh Lord, send the Messiah, send the Messiah, send the Messiah. And then the Messiah comes and what do they say? We do, do you have a plan B? Is there another Messiah in there? We're not comfortable with the one that we got. And so this is a real struggle and that is one real response here it should shock you and me when we read this, but it should also challenge us and say, how would I really respond? I mean, what if, what if the Jesus that comes is not what I was looking for? What if he starts poking and prodding in places that it's like, Lord, that's not what I was asking. I, I had a different plan in mind. Now, there is a second response, and that's the former demoniac who is a response of worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Interestingly, notice we're told the man is sitting at Jesus' feet, which is a posture of worship, especially in the Gospels. He's sitting there, again, restored, and he is just wanting to hear the word of the one who has saved him. And notice he begs to go with Jesus and in Mark's gospel, what is the to, to be with Jesus means to be what? A disciple, right? He said, Lord, I just want, I want to get, they're sending you away, I want to get back in the boat and go with you. Now I might point out, it'd probably be a good thing because if you've been living for years among the tombs and acting like this man acts, I'm not sure I want to go back and face everybody in the town because if they're sending Jesus away, what might be their response to you? Right? But Jesus, interestingly, he listens to the people and he leaves. He even listened to the demons and let them go into the herd of swine. He does not grant this man his request. Instead, what he actually does is he sends the man on mission. Because Jesus is not going to be there to proclaim the gospel now. The people have asked him to leave and he's going to leave. But I will leave a witness and a testimony among you. And it's going to be the very man that got delivered. And every day you're going to see him, and he's going to be clothed, he's going to be in his right mind, he's not going to be acting like an animal, but you're still not going to be able to contain him because he is going to be telling you what happened. And notice uh, Jesus uh, is there to tell the people what happened, and he's going to go ahead and minister. And what's interesting, of course, is what we've seen in the Gospels is very often when the second Jesus does a miracle, what stops him from proclaiming the Gospel? Crowds start gathering around, and he's trying to preach, and they're all wanting a miracle real quickly. Well, this is not going to be the case now. Jesus is not going to be there. The guy's going to be there to do it. Now, what's interesting is how much does this guy know at this point? I mean, is anybody picking, what if this guy stood up in front of our church and said, I want to go off and be a missionary, and we're like, you got saved like nine seconds ago, right? He, he doesn't know a lot of theology, but what does he know? <laughs> right? I know what I was like. I know who I was, and I know who I am, and I know the only thing in between is Jesus. I know who he is. And interestingly, notice, he he does know enough to say, Jesus says, go off and tell everyone what the Lord has done and how the Lord has shown mercy to you. But what does the man actually go off and say? How much Jesus has done. So he actually has grasped a good amount of theology right there. Unlike the disciples, don't miss the irony, the disciples saw the display of power and their question was, who is this? This guy's experienced the display of power and he knows who it is. Oh, you want me to tell who the what the Lord has done? I can tell you what the Lord has done, because the Lord is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. I know it because he spoke a word and I was delivered. And notice here, it begins actually with his own family, which is a great picture for you and me because when we are first delivered by Jesus, who's the first people he wants us to be missionaries to? Our own family and friends, the people right around us. That's who he is sent back to do. But notice, it's also very interesting. He expands out. Jesus says, you know, uh, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord's done. But in verse 20, he goes around the Decapolis. That's a word that means the 10 cities. He's not just going to his own home and his own family. He's going everywhere. This guy is out on mission. And can you understand why? What if I was that guy? I mean, I would want to tell everyone. I remember when I first got saved, and thankfully I had not literally seemed to be a gathering demoniac, but I'd only been saved three months, and our church had a youth week where they voted for who was going to be the choir director and who was going to be on the deacons and who was going to be this. And when it came time to vote for who was going to be the preacher, it was a unanimous choice. Brett, because something happened three months ago and he has not shut up about Jesus. So let him tell the congregation and leave us alone. Because all I knew was I was drunken stoned on a Friday and on a Sunday I went to a David Wilkerson crusade And God revealed himself to me and I walked back into school on Monday with a Bible in my hand. Everything is different. When we realize that, you have to say. Because I realize, whether I was living among the tombs, I was dead. Dead. This guy is a picture of what it means for us. And you don't have to know an immense amount of theology. I need to know to say, you know what Jesus did for me? Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. I may not be able to describe the hypostatic union, but I know that Jesus is God and he saved me. If you're able to say that, you can be on mission. And so can I. Every one of us can. And it ultimately ends up leading to the people we're told being amazed. And there is a much more open response to Jesus than the fear of asking him to leave. I mean, don't miss that. All the people are amazed. The very people that had told him to go away, they're now being amazed as they're hearing what God has done in this person's life in his own words. So how do we apply this? It'll be brief and we're going to come to the table. And the question that this text begs of you and me, you know. We, we keep being asked by Mark, in essence, who is this? Who is this one that we're reading about? And notice there's two very different responses. So as we consider the sovereign power of Jesus, the same one who could still the storm with the word, has now cast out this legion of demons with the word, what is my response to his sovereign power? Because there are two wildly different responses in this story. The first response is the townspeople, and they're afraid. They're afraid of Jesus, and they push him away. And again, I remind us, don't don't be too quick to push this on someone else. We fear a God that is outside of our own control. I mean, and if there is any sin that, that characterizes the way we are uh, you know, making God in our own image in this age is we want a God that we control. In fact, there are even many much more liberal scholars that they don't believe the stories of like Jesus stilling the storm because God doesn't have my permission to violate the laws of nature and, and do miraculous things. Because see, they fear a God who can do that. They want a God that they can define and that they can control. But that's the air that you and I breathe. Like the people there, we can easily prefer our comfortable lifestyle and fear that God's work may cost us. And the reality is, sometimes it does. Just sometimes there is a cost to being a disciple. And we can even, as strange as this sounds, I can prefer the destructive devil I know to the God that I don't know. Is that not true? Think in your own life. Even if I know something is destructive, if at least I know what it is, I can achieve a comfort level with that. And I'm more comfortable with that than if Jesus is going to come in here and just start taking over the whole place. And that's exactly what we see with these townspeople. And so to every one of us, there's the first question is, have I responded to Christ as Lord? Because, of course, these people, this is their first introduction to Jesus, they're being confronted with the Lordship of Christ, and their response is, I don't want that. I don't even want to hear the rest of what you've got to say or what you can do. Can you please leave? And if you are here and you've never responded to the gospel, Uh, I encourage you, do not push him away. Receive, embrace him as Lord. You don't want to live in death. But secondly, for us, even as believers, are there areas where I've pushed Jesus away and I've pushed his work away out of fear that it's going to change my comfortable life? Okay, this, see, this is where it's, it's very challenging. It's easy for me to judge these townspeople. It's easy for me to judge and say, if I would have lived in the South in the 1860s, I would have known slavery was wrong and would have stood up and said something. Isn't it easy to say that? I mean, we have a culture right now that loves to judge everything that's like more than 15 minutes old, Right? We're so much better and so much wiser than everybody who went before. Because, see, it's easy to judge that guy's sin. The question is what if Christ is revealing something to me that I'm afraid of? What if he's revealing something to me that I don't want to let go of? So, a couple of things. What if the, the call and the work of Jesus in my life were to cost me a promotion at work? Or, what if the call of Jesus was to a new vocation that was going to have a lot less pay? It was going to be the great benefit of more hours and less compensation. What if the call of Jesus was going to cost me reputation or friendships? What if the call of Jesus was. Just simply to put me in situations that were way outside my comfort zone. How do I respond in the midst of that? Because, see, each of us, here's the bottom line thing when we come to Jesus as Lord, what rights does he have to speak to? Everything. This isn't a negotiation. (laughs) He has the right to speak to any area and let's be honest that is a if you don't say that's a scary thing you're lying it's a very scary thing but that's one of the things so is the spirit speaking to me in any area like this out of this text because friend let me tell you as scary as it is we don't want to say jesus can you get back in the boat even if it's just in an area in our life. But there's another response, which is the man that's delivered, and that is to be on mission and tell others. You know, he's going back to family and friends, and notice what, how had those family and friends treated him. See, let's be honest. If you were delivered, and you came back, and You ran into me, and it's like, weren't you the guy that was trying to put the chain on me last week? Didn't I used to live in your house, and now I've been living where for the last couple years? Oh, yeah, out among the tombs. How hard would it be to preach the gospel? But see, here's the good news. You know what? That man had been delivered. He had been forgiven. He had been cleansed. And all he wants to do is tell... It doesn't matter what they had done. That's not the issue. Sin was the issue. Freedom was the issue. And so he's also telling people, again, as a second thing, think about what did these people already said to Jesus himself? Can you leave? I mean, does this seem like promising soil? (laughs) Right? I mean... Jesus himself was already there, and they were like, Can you please leave? This is not, Lord, is there a a more promising ground you can send me to? But that's not what it is. The Lord told him to go, and so he goes to them. He's like the farmer in the parables. He's not responsible for what's going to happen to the seed, he's responsible to do what? Throw the seed. So you see, we're, we're following the parables. The man goes out and he sows seed. Is some of it going to fall on stony ground? Yes. Is all these demons that just caused the pigs, are they still around? Are they going to try and pluck some of it up? Yes. Are there going to be weeds? Yes. Does any of that matter? No. I'm not responsible. I'm supposed to throw seed. That's exactly what the guy is doing. So you and I are called to spread the seed no matter the response. You may look at our culture around us right now and say, man, we are so busy pushing God out of every area of life no more than they were in the Decapolis. These people are mistreating Christians no more than they had done to this guy in the Decapolis. These people are not responsive no differently than was going on in the Decapolis. The good news is we're not responsible for any of that. We're responsible simply to speak the word of God, and trust that it is powerful. The same word that delivered that demoniac can deliver our family, our neighbors, our friends with the powerful word of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, when we consider all that Jesus has done, how can we be silent? We we, we need to be open. They may think you look more like the Gadarene demoniac at the beginning of the story. That's okay. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we proclaim who Christ is and what he's done. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and it's going to be brief and simple this morning based on what we've just gone through in the applying the word. And I just want to encourage us as we come to the table, is there any area where the Lord is speaking? Because I didn't dwell on it a lot, but I want to remind you, demons are real. They are here. And if they had their intent and way with you, what would it be? Give you a good life? Bless you? It's death. And destruction. Even when it's a thing that seems good in the moment, it's always for slavery down the road. Always. So when they're making that offer, the Lord wants us to hear they whisper to us that submission to Jesus as Lord is slavery when it's actually freedom. They whisper, just like Satan did in the garden that God's intent is somehow nefarious and for evil when it's always for our good. It's Mm -hmm. their intent is for evil. And so is there an area where the Spirit is speaking to us this morning? Or just in your own life, it's like the Lord is speaking to me and I have been avoiding that. I've not been wanting to hear. Let's let the Spirit speak and do work because freedom is found in hearing and receiving and responding any results that happen after we leave them in the hands of God but we want to say Lord I'm sitting at your feet not Lord get in the boat and go away so if you are a believer you are welcome to this table this is for those who are in relationship with Christ to receive from him for what I receive from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, when I consider my life before I knew Christ, I can identify with the words of C.S. Lewis. I was a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Lord, though I may not have dwelt among physical tombs, I was dead in my transgression and sin, without God and without hope in the world. But then you came. And with the word, you raised me, you set me free, you restored me. So, Lord, as I take this bread, I sit now at your feet, desiring to worship and follow you. Take and eat. Lord, I confess today all the uncleanness of my life. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed, in the past and in the present, and yet in your mercy you did not reject me but by your blood you have cleansed, healed, and forgiven me. So Lord, I sit humbly at your feet, giving you thanks for your precious blood that has cleansed me and brought me salvation. Take and drink. Let's stand together. And I'm going to be praying for us, and I want to encourage you, as the Lord has brought something to your mind, was there any uh, self-help book that was going to deliver the gathering demoniac? There's not. This is not a self-help project. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to deliver us. Okay, we, we, we want to boldly ask God to work. So I encourage you, join with me as we're crying out for God, not for self-improvement, but for the freedom that comes from the gospel. Lord, when I consider how often people did not want to receive you, preferring their paltry freedoms that were really slavery, thinking more of temporal temporal comforts than eternal joy, wanting your absence more than your presence, Lord, I am shocked. But then I consider how often the same has been true in my life. Lord, I even confess that as your disciple, I so often am afraid to follow you with wholehearted, bold faith and obedience. Lord, if I am honest, I often want a God I can control rather than a God whose glory and power threatens to shatter all of my illusions of control. I confess that I have often been so afraid of what I might lose rather than realizing all that I will surely gain by launching out and living in radical faith. So I come now, Lord, and I cry out. Lord, speak your powerful word. Lord, shatter the chains that would bind me. Lord, expel the darkness and deceit that would surround me. Lord, renew my mind. Lord, I pray that the breeze of your spirit would fan into flame faith and love in my heart so that I would live in holy boldness that would expel all fear. Father, I pray that we would hate nothing but sin, and fear nothing but you. Lord, I pray as well that you would send us forth on mission to declare to others the glorious truth of the gospel that brings freedom found only in trusting and walking with you. Holy Spirit, I pray you would fill each and every one of us. Draw us close to the Father. Shine the light on any areas where we have feared to open ourselves up to you. And Lord, send us out to be your missionaries even in places we never thought we would go. We ask all of this In the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory, amen. Amen. Now grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and other. Brothers and sisters, you are cleansed. You are restored. You are filled. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing.